Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you joined us for today's podcast. We're going through a special series called Simply by Grace, the book. When I wrote Simply by Grace, I never dreamed it would have such an impact and be translated into a dozen languages with more in the works. It's published in English by Kriegel, and you can get the book at our website, gracelife.org, or on Amazon, or wherever you buy your paperback or digital books. Like a lot of folks, you might want to buy a bunch and hand them out to people who need a better understanding of God's amazing grace. Grace Life ministers around the United States and the world sharing the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Our ministry is supported by folks just like you, and that too can be done on our website, gracelife.org. What we'll do now is read a chapter of Simply by Grace and follow that with an interview on the topic of that chapter with someone who's going to give further insights about that aspect of God's grace. So, if you're ready, we'll dive into the book. Chapter 9. A New Accountability As mentioned previously, some people think that an emphasis on God's grace will produce an irresponsible lifestyle in believers and abuse of that grace. Oh, you have your ticket to heaven, they say, so you think you can do whatever you want. But that is not at all a proper understanding of what grace does or the Bible teaches. Consider what Titus 2, 11-12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace doesn't teach irresponsibility. It teaches we should be responsible with the grace we have received. The word used in the above passage for teaching means training. It is the word from which we get our English word pedagogy, the training of children. As God's children, we are trained in the negative sense to deny ungodliness and in the positive sense to pursue godliness. If that is the purpose of grace, then we will be held accountable before God for how we respond to His grace. There are rewards and consequences for the choices we make and the conduct we pursue. God does not let His children run wild. He has positive and negative motivations to influence our conduct. We must give an account. In the New Testament, we have the fullest revelation about a time and event where we will have to stand before God to give an account for how we live. This event is called the Judgment Seat of Christ, sometimes referred to by its Greek designation, the Bema. Consider this reference to the Bema in Romans 14, 10-12. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the Judgment Seat of Christ. For it is written, quote, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, unquote. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. The mention of the judgment seat of Christ in this passage is to show these Christians who were judging one another about controversial issues that they will ultimately be judged by God, not men. Note the inclusive emphasis, quote, we shall all, unquote, and quote, every knee, every tongue, unquote, and quote, each of us, unquote. No one will be exempt. But the we and the whole context of Romans shows that Paul and the Roman believers are in view. So this is a judgment for Christians. 
Also note that it is a judgment of our conduct, not a judgment of our salvation. Our salvation is an issue settled when we were justified once and forever. Our eternal salvation will never be questioned, but our deeds, conduct, and motivations will face God's scrutiny. The same truth is also stated clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Again, Christians are the we. What we do in this life will determine what we receive from God. Both positive and negative consequences are implied. Let us look more closely at the nature of these consequences. Positive Consequences Good conduct and motivations will be rewarded accordingly. The Bible mentions many positive rewards. One important passage is 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15, which says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Once the foundation is laid, our relationship with Jesus Christ established through faith, we must build on it. In the immediate context, Paul seems to be addressing those who teach believers. But this truth would certainly apply to all Christians. There is a special day, the day that we give account at the judgment seat of Christ, when God's judgment, which is symbolized here and frequently in the Bible as fire, will test our works. Some will have their works, represented by gold, silver, and precious stones, endure the flames. Others will have their works, wood, hay, and straw, burned up. This passage does not speak of the judgment of our salvation and the fire of hell or purgatory. How do we know? because it is not the person who burns, but the person's works, symbolized by the combustible materials. The passage teaches that those with good works and those with bad works will be saved in the end, even if it is, quote, as through fire, unquote. To extend the imagery, some will enter heaven naked and with their hair smoldering. Apparently, those with bad works looked good to others, but didn't pass God's scrutiny. It implies that they had good-looking works, but bad motives. Those whose works endure the flames, the gold, silver, precious stones, quote, will receive a reward, unquote. It does not say what that reward will be. In other passages, Jesus taught that he will bring rewards for our works at his coming, though he didn't explain the exact nature of those rewards either. Though Jesus' rewards are not well defined, it should be enough for us to know that we will be rewarded and that it will be good. Jesus said that we can lay up treasures in heaven, Matthew 6.20. Those could not be material treasures, so how we use our lives and our possessions in this life translates into some kind of heavenly wealth. Some rewards are spoken of as crowns. The crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8, and the crown of life, James 1.12, the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. Again, the nature of these crowns is not specifically described. It could be that they are used in the sense the crown that is rejoicing, or the crown that is righteousness, and so forth. 
In other words, our reward is the richest experience of rejoicing in God's presence, of richly experiencing His righteousness, His life, and His glory in our eternal state. It implies that there will be degrees of these experiences based on our faithfulness and works in this life. Another aspect of positive rewards is reigning with Christ in His coming kingdom. The twelve apostles who left everything to follow Christ will be rewarded by their sitting on twelve thrones in the kingdom. Matthew 19, 27-28. Rewards for others who prove faithful will include ruling over various amounts of cities in the coming kingdom. Luke 19, 12-27. See also Matthew 25, 14-23. It will also be a major honor to be commended verbally by our Lord. If our faith is pure and strong in the midst of trials, we will receive praise, honor, and glory in the Christ's presence. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. If we are faithful to confess Christ before others, then Christ will confess us. Give a good testimony to the Father, Matthew 10, 32. Also, as with an earthly master's commendation, we can hear our Lord tell us, Well done, Matthew 25, 21, Luke 19, 17. This is not an exhaustive list of future rewards. We could look in Hebrews at the reward of sharing in the kingdom or look at the overcomer rewards to the seven churches in Revelation 2-3. through three. We could also try to be more specific about the exact nature of these positive rewards, but that is not our purpose here. We want to establish the fact that God will hold us accountable for how we spend our lives and that if we do well, we will be rewarded. Our rewards are not only future, but some can be temporal, that is, enjoyed in this life. Jesus came to give us His life, eternal life, which we begin to experience at the moment of faith and into eternity, and also the possibility of experiencing his life more abundantly, both in the present and in eternity, John 10.10. When the disciple Peter implied that he and other disciples had left everything to follow Jesus, our Lord told him, quote, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Mark 10, 29-30 For our sacrificial service to Christ, we will be rewarded with the fullest experience of God's eternal life, not only in the future, but in this life as well. If we have to leave our biological family for Christ's sake, we are blessed even more with a spiritual family. We can also enjoy more lands as our own. For example, Because of Jesus Christ, I am writing much of this book from a house in the mountains far from home, which Christian friends, who are close as my own family, have offered for my free use. Negative Consequences If living our Christian lives well will result in positive rewards, then the converse is true. Living irresponsibly will result in negative consequences. The most obvious negative consequence will be the loss of rewards, which we could have received. 1 Corinthians 3.15 speaks of those unworthy works that are burned up, representing a loss of effort and a loss of potential rewards in eternity. Further, by implication, the same passages that teach we can receive rewards also teach we can lose them. We can lose treasures in heaven, crowns, ruling privileges, verbal praise, and the abundant experience of God's life in general. We can also lose the experience of that abundant life here and now, along with losing the blessing of multiplied spiritual family and lands. Other passages teach that we can experience shame and regret at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus may not give us a good confession or testimony if we fail 
to confess him before others. Quote, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32-33 Nothing in the surrounding context of this passage refers to a denial of our salvation. The denial is of a good commendation by the Son to the Father. Another passage that speaks of a negative consequence at the Bema is 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This is obviously a word to Christians to encourage them to stay vitally close to Jesus in their walk, lest they be caught off guard by his coming and be ashamed. Just as positive consequences can be experienced in this life, so can negative ones. We know that sin and irresponsibility will always breed the consequences of guilt. Guilt manifests itself in various ways, such as spiritual dryness, depression, lack of joy, even physical ailments. In Psalms 32 and 51, we see these negative effects from David's sin. While sin may have its natural consequences, God may also actively discipline a sinning believer. We are exhorted in Hebrews chapter 12, 5-7 to endure God's chastening as from a heavenly Father. Quote, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Unquote. Again, this passage shows that God does not let his children run wild. He is loving enough to correct us with his discipline. The New Testament shows various ways God disciplines believers. He can do it through leaders in the church who confront a man or woman who sins and may have to disfellowship that person if he or she does not repent. Matthew 18, 15-17, 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5. Sometimes God doesn't wait for the church to initiate procedures, but takes disciplinary action directly. This seems to be true in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead when they lied, Acts 5, 1-11, and the abusers of the Lord's Supper who became ill and died, 1 Corinthians 11. There is sin that leads to physical death, James 5, 20, 1 John 5, 16. The negative consequences for sinful and irresponsible Christians can be sincere, but they are a necessary corollary to the experience of His grace. Negative consequences discourage us from abusing His grace and show us that God loves us enough not to give up on us, but chastens us so as to bring us to repentance and a deeper experience of His grace. Hebrews 12.11 talks about the desirable results of God's discipline. Quote, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One thing is clear from looking at the negative consequences brought on by sin. When we sin, we lose something, but not our salvation. God's grace is great enough to cover our sins, but not to excuse them. The Importance of Rewards Though Jesus and the other New Testament authors speak of rewards and use them as a motivation to faithful Christian conduct, it is sad that we do not often hear rewards taught to Christians. Some Christians do not have a theological category for rewards. In other words, they interpret the rewards and discipline passages as the reward of getting into heaven or the punishment of going to hell. 
This view often distorts the gospel by making our behavior essential for our salvation contrary to the free gift of grace. When reward passages are wrongly interpreted as salvation passages, the unavoidable motivation for doing good works is to validate one's salvation and escape hell. Fear can easily become the motive for good works, but fear of hell can never motivate the believer who is eternally secure. Fear of hell should motivate only the unbeliever. The believer can only fear loss of rewards or fear God's temporal discipline. But even then, fear is only one of several other motives for godly living. Some Christians do believe in rewards, but do not like to teach about them because they think it appeals to a mercenary motive. That is, they think it's not good to do good in order to earn a reward. We know that rewards are not the only or necessarily the best motivation for godly living. Love, gratitude, and duty are some of the highest motivations for serving God in this life. But there's nothing wrong with the encouragement and consolation that rewards bring. Since rewards are decreed and designed by God, they shouldn't be considered inferior or scorned in contempt. Every Christian should be taught about rewards. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. If rewards increase our participation in God's glory or give us a greater capacity to experience God's glory, then our rewards also enable us to give Him more glory. In Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders cast their thrones before Christ's throne. Whoever these elders represent, the crowns that they wear certainly symbolize reward, honor, and glory given to them for some reason. They are then able to use that honor to glorify God by offering Him their crowns. In other words, they honor God more by having crowns than if they didn't. The rewards we receive will better enable us to bring Him more glory. God initiates rewards because He is pleased to do so. So who are we to deny God pleasure? He delights to bless his children with good things. It is a common and commendable human urge to express appreciation for or reward good behavior in our own children. Would we expect less from our Heavenly Father? When we say that grace is unconditional and free, we do not promote irresponsible living or sin. There are consequences to sin that can stretch from this life into the next life, just as there are consequences for our good conduct and faithfulness. We are held accountable for how we choose to live our lives and are recompensed accordingly. These consequences, whether positive or negative, are in harmony with God's grace and justice. Review Questions 1. Why does every Christian need to know about the judgment seat of Christ? 2. What are some positive rewards for how we live as Christians? Negative Consequences 3. How can misunderstanding the Bible's teaching on rewards confuse the gospel of grace? Can you give an example? 4. How can rewards be used as a motivation for proper Christian living? We want to continue our discussion of how grace brings us accountability. And uh, to do that, I'm sitting with uh, Roger Fankhauser, Dr. Roger Fankhauser, um, who has uh, pastored a number of churches, got quite a bit of ministry experience. In fact, uh, we pastored the same church, uh, not not at the same time. And um, he's also written a book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and welcome to the podcast, Roger. Well, good to be here. Uh, the book is called Stormproof Men. It's designed to help 
guys who are struggling with uh, sexual purity. And it really focuses on, I think, some practical tools to help. But it uh, is a great place where grace comes into play in understanding that um, when you struggle with sin, it doesn't mean that you're not a believer, as some would teach. doesn't mean that you lost your salvation, as some would teach. But rather, learning to use the tools and understanding um, grace as it applies to real-life issues. And, and so that point comes out in the book clearly, so that would be very helpful. You, but you've also contributed to some other books, like... Right. I wrote uh, a chapter in um, Free Grace Theology, uh, Five Ways It Magnifies the Gospel. Um, that was not a response to, but uh, following some uh, writings that Wayne Grudem had done against free grace and uh, uh, wrote about the uh, superiority of Christ in that and also wrote a chapter in 21 uh, Tough Questions that uh, basically asked the, the question, why shouldn't we live you know, like the devil as a believer? And so it deals with the whole issue of, of accountability. Well, good. That's what we're going to talk about today, and I think that's one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about it. And uh, you also, I'd mentioned, uh, were served as president of the Free Grace Alliance and right. on the board as well. And so Roger has been kind of immersed in this in this uh, Free Grace movement and uh, contributed quite a bit to it over the years, and uh, it's been nice to work with him. Um, now, some say when it comes to accountability that grace, and this is one of the biggest problems we have i just got back from eastern europe and they do not like the teaching of eternal security there because mm -hmm. they say it gives people license to sin they call it that western doctrine of immorality and they would not even allow me to speak in some places i'm told i'm sure of that but um, but grace doesn't teach give a license to sin does it how how do you answer that well the it's a multifaceted question that uh, the person that, that says, and I've, I've had to answer this, is, well, you're saying I can live however I want, and that's a partial truth, because I can live however I want, but that doesn't mean there's no consequences. The issue is that once we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life, and the consequences of foolish living or sinful living is not, well, now you're going to end up in hell. It's rather you know, some other issues that we'll talk about um, a little bit more as we go on. Um, so that's that's one side of it. And the other is that grace uh, frees us up to live because we're not living under some sort of fear or doubt, but rather we're living as uh, God's children, sons of God, and with the ability to live right. And much as any um, parent wants his children to live a good and full life, God wants that for us as well. And so Grace does not teach license to sin. As a matter of fact, it teaches strongly against sin. It's just that we don't hang that issue of, um, as someone once said, we don't dangle people over hell as a fear factor because that's not the, the issue. There are other factors involved. Yeah, and uh, it makes me think of uh, one of the key verses that was used in the chapter, um, which is uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm going to read that because I think that, that's so important um, in this discussion. It says, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly 
in the present age. So the idea that grace teaches us to live a godly life means that we don't have to live a godly life to earn grace, for one thing. Uh, but it, it does free us, uh, as you said, to do either the right or the wrong thing. Right. I always ask people this question, because I am genuinely curious, since that is used as an objection against free grace theology, have you ever met anybody that says, I can do whatever I want, I'm, I'm saved by grace, all my sins are forgiven, past, present, future? I actually have one. One. Yeah. That uh, he um, walked away from God and he said, point blank, I know this is okay because I know that I'm going to heaven. Uh, but the strange thing is, he not long after that um, contracted some sort of weird disease. I remember what it is. And, and within two years, he was dead. Now, I'm not necessarily saying those are connected, but it's... Mm -hmm. Well, you know, could I... Could well be. Yeah, they could well be. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the people I ask can't think of anybody. I, I honestly can't think of anybody. And yet that's yeah. used as an excuse not to teach the grace of God and eternal security, which is yeah. interesting. That was 25, 30 years ago. And so it's been long drought since then. And nobody well, who actually says they believe that. I bet you could say with me that I've met thousands of people who use grace as an excuse to serve God. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's the more common response. Yeah. Well, when we talk about accountability, I think one of the things that uh, uh, free grace theology brings us is the idea of accountability at the judgment seat of Christ, right? which is clearly taught. In fact, I think it's throughout the whole New Testament, maybe in every book, and uh, where we give an account uh, of our lives. What, in your view, is the judgment seat of Christ? How should people view that uh, with fear and trepidation? Uh, is it something to fear? Uh, or is it going to be a time of joy? Uh, I think it can be both, and that's going to need a little explanation. I think the, the key purpose of the Bema, as I understand it, is uh, Christ evaluates us and rewards us for what we've done here in this life, for faithful obedience to Him. And I really think that His desire is to reward us, not to spank us. We often all know people who see God as that, that cosmic killjoy that's just you know, kind of harsh and, and judgmental and, and wants to um, slap his kids, for lack of a better term, when they disobey. And I don't think that's the picture. I think God would much rather reward us because he, first off, he's glorified in the rewards, he's glorified in the lifestyle, and he's you know, a loving father. He, you know, he wants his children to do well, just as we as earthly parents want our children to do well. And so for the vast majority of Christians, I don't think it's something to fear, something to be aware of and realize that there's going to be positive and negative, I suspect, for everybody. I have no reason not to believe that. And, but it's, it's more of a time of reward. However, there's probably you know, a small proportion of Christians that are squandering their life and um, they may have reason to fear. Again, not because of uh, they're going to be cast away from God and into to hell, but um, I suspect that uh, when they come face to face with a Savior and they realize they've squandered their life and chased all the wrong things, that uh, there will be great sorrows. matter of fact, First John talks about um, not being ashamed at His coming. You know, so there, there will be some, but for the most... For the most part, I don't think it's something to fear. Yeah, the Bible clearly talks about negative consequences at the judgment seat of Christ, but a lot, lot of us don't like the idea of uh, punitive 
consequences because Jesus was already punished for our sins. But I can certainly see the withholding of rewards as something to, to, that would cause regret or shame, as First as John 2.28 says. And there can be regret um, uh, in the, of how we squandered our life, as you said. Uh, some people uh, talk about or say that we who talk about the judgment seat of Christ, uh, it's contrary to grace because it, it's based on our performance, whereas grace is a free gift. So how, how do you reconcile those ideas? Well, I, I think we uh, sometimes lump performance all into one big group, and, and it shouldn't be. Um, it's not my performance out of my strength, using my resources so that I can gain favor or reward with God, but rather it's using um, who God has made me to be and my giftedness and opportunities and uh, through the indwelling of the Spirit and by the application of His Word, walking faithfully in, in Him, on the outside, it looks the same, but it's, you know, what's, what's driving it, what's causing it to happen. So in, in that sense, it's not my personal performance. It's rather me walking faithfully obedient to what God has um, called us uh, uh, to do. And so uh, it's not really, I don't see it as something contrary to grace, but God in his grace has not just said, um, you have eternal life, just hang on, one day you'll be in heaven. But he's given us his eternal life, and he's given us purpose. And that, that purpose shows up in the gifts he's given us, the opportunities for ministry he's given us, whether that's in the family, whether it's some big ministry, small ministry, whatever it is. And so I think that then on top of that, he uh, rewards us when we're faithful. You know, uh, not only... Are we talking about accountability at the judgment seat of Christ? But uh, we also believe that the scriptures teach uh, consequences in this life, right? Uh, where God chastens or disciplines His children. Even the church is given permission to discipline unruly believers as well. Um, so the motivation is both in this life and next life, because God is God as a father doesn't want His children to run wild, as we say. Um, but some people say that free grace is antinomian. Hmm. And why don't you explain what you think they mean and how would you respond to that? Well, usually the term antinomian means um, against law. And so usually when people use that term, it's a pejorative term to say, well, you guys are just against the law, often in terms of... Um, Old Testament law, you know, oh, it's okay if you violate, you think it's okay to violate the Ten Commandments. And, and it's usually, in my opinion, it's usually used as a pejorative to sound really uh, authoritative rather than just saying you're against law, you use a big word and it makes it sound like more than it really is. Um, but it, it comes from a misrepresentation or a misunderstanding of what grace really teaches because. Um, the response would be first is you explain to me what you mean by that. And, you know, if they really have a, a, an explanation of what they mean, then you can respond to whatever they say. But uh, in the one sense of am I antinomian in the sense that we no longer have to follow the, the Old Testament? Yeah, I do believe that because the Old Testament law was fulfilled in Christ. And we're no, we never were under the Ten Commandments. And we certainly uh, 
are not under the Old Testament law. To, we can't earn it, keep it, or, or save it through the law. Paul makes it real clear in Galatians 2.16. That's one of my favorite verses that, mm-hmm. you know, we're uh, not justified by the works of the law. says that three times, but we are justified by faith in Christ. He says that three times. Um, so in, in that sense that, yeah, the, the law has been fulfilled. We're no longer under it. It served its purpose. Then I would agree. But if they mean that there's no, um, I'll use the term, rules for living, I disagree. But the, pur- the, the purpose of those rules are not to, earn, I've said before, not to earn, keep, or prove our salvation, but rather it's the, the um, guidance of a loving father. I've used the picture before of you know, walking in a rice field. And if you walk on the dike, it's a great walk. But if you stray to the right or stray to the left, you're going to end up in mud and muck, and it's going to be a mess. Um, and God's commands for the New Testament believer are, this is what quality of life, Jesus talks about abundance of life, this is what glorifying me means. These places, whether the right or the left, these are not good, sin, other problems, here's how you stay away from them. So it's not law in the sense of something I have to do to earn God's favor, but rather guidelines for living um, for my best and for God's glory. And the moral principles of the Old Testament law we find repeated in the New Testament, right? not the ceremonial, sacrificial, and so forth. But, Aren't you uh, glad? Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, I'd rather eat my sheep than sacrifice them. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the scriptures teach that we're not under grace and uh, that in Christ we're dead to the law. And I have a friend that says we're not antinomian, we're necronomian. <laughs> he invented a term. And I like that, actually. Yeah, we're dead yeah. to the law, necronomian. Right. Um, but we realize that the law is good and holy. It serves its purpose, and it passes on to us uh, the moral principles that, that represent God's righteousness. Um, let, me, uh, let me ask you something. Uh, when we think about rewards, uh, in what way, I'm getting more personal here, mm-hmm. do they actually motivate you? Because in the scriptures, they seem to be used in a way to motivate the readers. Mm-hmm. So are you motivated by rewards in this life, the next life? or what, what? We didn't talk about what the rewards are, and there are many different kinds, but is there something that really strikes you and motivates you? Yeah, in uh, broad terms, I, I can't imagine what it would be like, but um, I hope to hear from the lips of the Savior, well done. And, and just that opportunity. I remember as a young uh, kid growing up, um, I craved my dad's affirmation. And I can still remember a few little things that he said that he probably, if he were still alive, he go, I don't remember that. But to me, as a young young kid, that, it was a big deal. And uh, just being told, "Well done, you did this well," those sorts of things. So that's a that's a motivation. Um, I think there's also a sense of um, God saying it's worth what you give up here. I've used the illustration before. Uh, I've heard many talk about the high cost of discipleship. And I really think that failure to be a disciple is more costly than following him. Um, In what way? Because you, give up, you lose the, the reward for obedience. You lose the, the quality of, of life. You end up 
investing in things that uh, ultimately don't matter um, if you're focused on on this life. And it's it's much like uh, retirement income. You and I are both of the age, but that's more meaningful than it once was. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, I never thought of however many dollars a month I put in retirement as, oh, this is such a painful, you know, loss. Because I saw it as something far more down the road. Mm-hmm. But if when I first started working for DuPont, we could put a certain amount of money in and the company would match it. And I took advantage of some of it, but not all of it. And the money I squandered on important things like probably bait for fishing, I don't yep, know. Yep, absolutely. But the money I squandered then, I, I never have again to reinvest for something bigger and, and better down the road. I see discipleship much, much the same way. So. The cost I pay for discipleship is more of an investment than an absolute cost in, the sen- in that sense. That's a good analogy for this life and the next life because Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I remember reading the biography of Warren Buffett and, and somebody asked him if he was going to buy a hamburger today. Some, I, I'm not remembering exactly right, yeah. but he sat there and thought and thought and yeah. thought. And I said, what are you thinking about? He said, well, I'm wondering if I want to buy a hamburger that's going to cost me $10,000. Yeah. In other words, he was thinking of the investment value of the price right. of a hamburger right. over his lifetime. Yeah. And that's when he was young. So everything has a cost to it. Uh, I like that analogy, though. I'm, I'm reminded uh, of a couple places I've, I've traveled and comments from believers there. There was uh, uh, one of the first missionary trips I did was to the country of Kazakhstan, and there was an Uzbeki pastor there. And he talked about this, the cost to his family just in, in social acceptance and being restricted from things of not being a Christian, or not being a Muslim, but being a Christian in that particular country. And I was thinking, I think God in his grace rewards on the backside to remind you that it's worth the price you're paying now because sometimes the price um, short term can be you know, quite quite heavy yeah think of the christians that right now in afghanistan are losing their heads because mm-hmm. just because they're christians and the taliban has taken over the country mm-hmm. uh so we have to they have to find encouragement that the reward is in heaven uh but we also find a lot of rewards in this life too i mean i i think of john fourteen twenty one. i can't quote it exactly but if you love me you'll keep my commandments and and i, I jesus said he will manifest himself to us so there's a promise of a more intimate relationship with him there, which is something that always motivates me. Yeah. Um, but the well done is something, you know, I always like to hear as well, but I want to know that it's deserved. And, right. and sometimes I, I wonder if that's going to be weighed against the bad things that I have done. <laughs> is he going to say, well done, except yeah. <laughs> yeah. when I coach yeah. pole vaulting and, uh, and one of my vaulters is in a meet and he makes a jump, all his teammates and he misses or does something wrong, just totally wrong. And all the team may say, good jump, good jump. And, I'm, and I, I go up to him and I say, no, it wasn't a good jump. Don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it right next yeah. time. Uh, but I see that as a correcting discipline, not as any kind of punitive thing. Yeah. I'm trying to get him better and get him over the bar. They're just trying to encourage him. So an empty encouragement doesn't mean much to me. Yeah. Uh, but God, God in his grace disciplines us, I think, to, with the goal of making us more holy, according to Hebrews chapter 12. You know, uh, the church is also given the responsibility of discipline. This is shifting uh, a little bit, but 
uh, it reminds me of just recently, I was talking to a pastor in Ukraine, um, and he was kept bouncing this off me <laughs> about a woman in his church who her husband died, and she has invited another man to live with her who's not a Christian and not interested at all in spiritual things. And, and he is facing the prospect of, in his words, excommunicating her from the church. And he was really upset about having to do that. Some people would look at that and say, uh, that's not a gracious thing to do. That's not, that doesn't represent God's grace. How would you respond to issues of church discipline like that? Well, if you think of uh, God's grace and his discipline as um, seeking to train us, that's part of the Hebrews passage, and you know, talk, uses some pretty tough words in there, like scourging, and you know, so it, it can be pretty severe. And sometimes I think that's just training for lack of knowledge, but sometimes it's correction from, you know, we've gone astray, and he's going to do what he needs to do to, to bring us back. Um, the, the church is sometimes part of that process. And I don't think it's a lack of grace. Grace doesn't mean anything goes. And it certainly doesn't mean we're doubting your salvation, but it's rather you're not living a godly life. This is a specific area of sin. We have to be careful that it's not something, just something that I don't like, but rather you know, really is a sin issue. And uh, so I think it lines up with grace because the purpose ultimately of that should be correction not just simply inflicting punishment but um, doing what you need to get attention Um, you know i know with our kids we had um, levels of discipline if you will you know if they respond early on case was closed but if they didn't respond if they got back into it the consequences would get tougher not to inflict pain but to get their attention and get them back on the right path. Yeah. Uh, so the ultimate goal of discipline is a gracious one in that mm-hmm. it, it's concerned with the welfare of the person. It's mm-hmm. done out of love. Um, and against the background of Hebrews chapter 12, of course, is the, you have the warning passages, which are sound terrifying to people. Uh, but you know what has always amazed me is that God doesn't specify exactly what he's talking about there, which kind of leaves it open-ended for us to use our imagination as to what kind of discipline there will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does sound severe. We all can agree on that. It does sound severe. And it is for Christians. We, I hope we agree on that too. Or we'll have to do another podcast on Hebrews. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that is another story for another day. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, at the end of each day, uh, I've kind of developed the habit of laying in bed. And since I don't fall asleep immediately, like some people I know, <laughs> I, I lay in bed and I say, okay, Lord, how'd we do today? I say that every night. And I, go, and I kind of re- go through the day, well, I didn't do so good there. Uh, you got a lot of work done there. And I think I was pretty faithful there. I really don't know how to evaluate myself. And uh, that same is true at the judgment seat of Christ. But I, I found uh, this passage is always an encouragement to me because people in Corinth were judging Paul severely. And he was defending himself constantly in First and Second Corinthians. But in First Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 through, I'll go through 5, I think, it says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. So here I am, I'm laying in bed trying to judge myself. 
but I don't take my own judgment seriously. And I think that's what Paul is saying. He says the reason why in verse 4, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So there's the Bema seat again. Mm -hmm. And that's where all things are going to be made clear. And that's where Jesus is going to ask the question, how did you do right. uh, with your life? And, and he's going to judge it. And I feel comfortable with that. That gives me a peace day by day uh, or disturbance, depending on how I'm doing. <laughs> but generally a peace day by day that, boy, I don't know why I'm doing or how I did or I didn't handle that right. But you know what? The Lord will judge me in that day. And even at the judgment seat of Christ, I think we'll see mercy and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time so that's kind of a comfort to me i don't know how how what comforts you on a day-to-day basis or what motivates you in your day-to-day life but that's constantly in in my mind part part of what i i do is i I don't do that because i would fall asleep but (laughs) um ultimately you know i remember a line that uh when abraham is dickering with god so to speak over sodom and gomorrah and and the line is basically will not the judge of the world do what is right and so i want to do what i what i'm convinced is right faithfully in day to day i know there's times that i don't there's times i choose not to and i realize every time i do it i go that's really dumb but you know we all have those Um, and that's where confession comes in right right Uh, yeah and so um ultimately that's where my rest comes in and the evaluation is going to be fair it's going to be just and it's from christ who loves us and and even the hard parts i I, and i'm not quite sure how this is going to work but the 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 hard parts the whatever emotion goes with that i don't think is going to last i find it interesting that the promise that there'll be no more tears in heaven is at the end of Revelation after all this has already gone by. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I don't think we would see the results going on into eternity. Mm-hmm. Some see it as a momentary regret or shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons that God disciplines us in this life, if you want to call it spanks us in this life, is so that we don't get spanked for eternity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and which which is inconceivable to me, and I, I think most Christians would would not believe that either. Um, but it, in the sense of we could lose rewards for all of eternity, he doesn't want us to lose rewards, so he'd rather, uh, as a good father, have his children behave in this life mm-hmm. so that he can reward them uh, generously mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And we see an example with our physical kids because as you raise them, you know, it usually takes more than one lesson for them to get some things and it's a life lifelong process that um, as parents were constantly involved in training them differently as new things pop up and disciplining them differently as new um, headaches pop up and but all of that is in a healthy home is with the goal of kids when they walk out the door to be on their own that they're my my goal is that they're um, physically able to take care of themselves emotionally and most importantly spiritually that they walk out strong people convinced in the the grace of god so you you think god as a father when we we are newborn into Mm -hmm. the family 
mm-hmm. expects, expects us to stumble and fall occasionally. Mm-hmm. And that he maybe even forgives those who might slip again and again back into drugs or pornography or mm-hmm. sexual immorality. Not as an excuse to do it. Yeah, not as an excuse, but yeah. Just because he's a gracious God. His grace and forgiveness is bigger than our, our sin. I've, I've sometimes described the, the Christian life as like we're an onion. You peel away one stinky layer and there's another one right underneath it. Um, that, that obviously is an exaggeration, but um, yeah, I think God in his grace uh, knows that we're going to stumble, knows uh, you know, the sin that so easily entangles that Hebrew talks about. I think there's a specific one the author is referring to, but by application, there's certain sins that each of us are prone to trip into. And um, God in his grace, I think, that forgives us. Confession, First John, there's no limit. You know, you've used it three times on this one, you're done. And that's written to believers, although some people don't think it is. Right. I'm convinced it is written to believers. So am I. Um, uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought on this this one, but um, but anyway, so we can we can trust God as our Father to do the right thing in this life and for all of eternity, and uh, it's not that we're we're not going to live. Here's what I was going to say: is that the judgment seat of Christ and the doctrine of rewards. When when I teach it, oftentimes or ask a group, they rarely get teaching on rewards mm-hmm. and the judgment seat of Christ put together. Uh, uh, it, it seems like it's just in every book of the New Testament and so important. And yet some people say, well, I don't want to work for rewards. That doesn't motivate me. That's a mercenary attitude or something like that. Um, to which you would say what? Well, um First off, there's a lot of teachings all throughout the New Testament that um, we should seek rewards. Um, and if we understand that rewards are a consequence of faithful, obedient life and they bring glory to God, then that takes some of that mercenary piece away from it. Um, and I suspect, I can think of, of several people that I know They've said something like that to me about reward, but with their kids, they always tell them, you know, hey, when you go out and play, win. Yeah. Well, okay, let's, there's an inconsistency there. Um, Doesn't it make any father or mother happy to reward their children for good behavior? Yeah. Of course it does. Yeah. Uh, So with with theologies that don't have a good doctrine of rewards and uh, the Bama Seat of Christ, they just see one big judgment at the end, the great white throne judgment, where the unsaved are sorted out from the saved, according to them. Mm-hmm. What dangers are there for a clear gospel in that kind of belief that doesn't have a system of rewards theology and the Bama seat, judgment seat of Christ theology? Well, I think the biggest problem is um, you would misunderstand passages that are addressed to believers and talking about reward or loss of reward from our perspective and assign those instead to determining heaven or hell. And so you end up with a gospel that um, has a lot of hooks attached to it. Um, You're saved by grace through faith, but if you do this, then you probably weren't really saved. Or if you do that, then you lose your salvation. Uh, going back to my book on uh, sexual purity, a um, couple different authors from more Reformed Lordship side 
uh, read, and, and they said outright, if you struggle with sexual sin, you don't win over it, then you probably weren't saved. Mm. You know, and so you end up with not just a, a faulty view of eternal life, but a faulty view of how to live this life, and you lose uh, com- complete sight of God's grace and power in taking you through those things and helping you grow and, and change. And it also affects the church because then people are afraid to admit that they're struggling with those things because, well, obviously you're not a believer. Instead of saying, well, how can we help you? Yeah, well, that's a good point. And it really compromises the grace of the gospel because mm-hmm. it puts conditions on it. You know, you're not a Christian unless you prove it by, your, back to that word performance or your good mm-hmm. works. Um, mm-hmm. So it adds merit or performance to the gospel. Well, I think we've had a, a good discussion today, and, uh, and some Roger's given us some good insights. Um, and I hope that people keep in mind that what we do today counts for eternity, and not abuse the grace of God, but live and let it train us towards godliness. Uh, one more time. Uh, the name of your book and how people can find that? Uh, it's called Stormproof Men. It's uh, published by Grace Theology Press. You can get it through Amazon, uh, either paperback version or Kindle version, or you can get it um, online through Grace Theology Press. Okay, and then you've contributed some other books as well. Mm-hmm. 21 Tough Questions About Grace and uh, Free Grace Theology, Five Ways It Magnifies the Gospel. Yeah, that one just came out with a second edition. And, oh, it did? Yeah. And is available on Kindle. Yeah, I've known that since yesterday. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I'm in that book too, and I, <laughs> I'm wondering if they edited me out or what. Yeah. yeah. Well, Roger, it's been great to talk with you, and Thank uh, you. you know, I Roger and I have uh, not only a lot of uh, uh, experience at church together, but we also have done a lot of mission trips together. And uh, COVID shut that down, so we we miss that fellowship overseas. It's always great to serve overseas. Roger does great cross culturally uh, with the and. Uh, teaching and people just love them there so we'll look forward to that day when it can resume yep but thanks for being with us thank you until next time all right thank you for listening for more resources or to help spread the message of god's life-changing grace visit our website at gracelife.org we'd love to hear from you send us a message at simply by grace at gracelife.org See you next time.